Welcome you again, my name is Daniel and uh, part of the team here and um, before we do anything I'd just like to pray, is that alright, can we just pray? I do not cease to give thanks for you, church, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And Heavenly Father, I pray that in these next few moments, Lord, these wouldn't just be words to inform our minds, but this would be a, a spiritual encounter with the living God and that you would do more than what we can see with our physical eyes right now in the room. Pray, Lord, that more power would be given to us than what we see when we look around. That you would display your power, that you would grant us your strength. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So 2020 for us as a church is actually our third full year. Can you believe it? We're only 14, 15 months old, but it's our third full year. And this year in 2020, I believe, is going to be a year of significant breakthrough for us. This is, a, this is a big year for us as a community. And if you're new with us, if you're not a Christian, if you're just looking in, if you're thinking like, what is this church thing about? Just go on a journey with us, if you will. This is our third full year and we are transitioning now. And our plan is that at the end of May, we will go from the status of being church plant to being church. And there are a few things that signify this breakthrough moment for us. We're looking at our leadership structure and how we organize ourselves, organize ourselves and how we kind of structure ourselves so we can best serve everyone. We want to make disciples, we want everyone to flourish in their gifting. How are we going to do that? Steve, at the end of the month, is going to be putting five men before the church as potential elders to establish strength. We're forming a membership. What it, we're asking the question, what does it look like to belong here at this community? What is it to be a Trinitarian, to be part of this community? All of which adding strength and transitioning into breakthrough for us. It's a, in a sense the, the feeling that God is turning the the page on what was chapter one into chapter two and these next few months in my mind's eye are like God just slowly turning the page and chapter two is going to start to be written and in any moment of breakthrough and change and transition it requires a lot from us in any moment if you've been to any like new job any new job there is just a moment where it's like it requires an extra bit of energy and resilience and perseverance because it's just extra tiring isn't it there's new things to learn there's new vulnerabilities there's new uncertainties you just got to cope with new stuff and it requires a little bit more of you and it's the same with us in church it is going to require a little bit more of us a little bit of focus energy resilience perseverance because in any moment of transition there is vulnerability that comes with it. 
some things get thrown up in the air, there's increasing uncertainty, and we need to live and walk into vulnerability, knowing this, that we have an enemy who doesn't want us to walk into our redemptive potential in God. He would like us to stay exactly where we are, and he will do everything he can to keep us there. When Jesus was um, about to go into his public leadership and teaching ministry, we're told that the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days before the breakout moment of his ministry and he went public. So there is a sense of which God had to lead him through a process of testing and trial before the breakout actually happened, before the public and visible ministry was about to take place, before breakthrough happened, Satan went at him hardest. We're told that it's the darkest at the just before dawn. And I would suggest that's exactly where Satan likes to work, just before breakthrough, because he knows if he can stop us just before the breakthrough is going to happen, he will keep us locked into where we are now and not fulfill our redemptive potential. Satan came at Jesus hard, and I would suggest for us that we should expect resistance, especially at this moment, individually and corporately. And I want to just, it's a one-off message in a sense, but it's at the beginning of this year, a few of us kind of end of November to December began to feel we are going into a new season as a church. We are looking to grow up in God. We are wanting to mature. We are wanting to lay foundations and establish ourselves. And there was a sense in which there was some spiritual opposition and resistance to what was happening quietly, maybe behind the scenes. Maybe you might just have felt over Christmas like, oh, why do I feel so weird? I'm not sure. But it's just this sense in which like Satan was trying to put the brakes on what God was doing. And what I want to do this morning, in a sense, is kind of bring it into the light. Because as soon as you bring something into the light, it's like cockroaches. You turn the light on, they're all gone. You know, like you don't want to know that they're there, actually. You'd rather they weren't there, but you'd rather they weren't actually there standing in front of you. And they... And what I want to do is work with the works of the enemy is just bring some stuff into light and just allow the works of the enemy to scatter and be destroyed. It's nothing to be afraid of, but we're told here that we need to be smart. And what my hope and my, my prayer is this morning is that we leave this place strengthened. However we might feel as we come into this Sunday, some of you might feel fragile, you might feel uncertain. That is just part of being a human. And especially if you're going to walk into the next step of your life, there is going to be vulnerabilities that come with that. I want you to leave with strength. Because Paul says in this passage that Marjan read for us, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And three times he says, Stand. Three times. Stand, church. Stand, church. Trinity Church London, will you stand in this moment? Because there is one who does not want you to stand. And if you're coming to here today and you're thinking, stand, they're like, I, I don't feel like, I, I feel like spiritually I'm on the floor right now. Or actually, I would like to be in bed under my duvet. Standing is like the last thing that I would want to be doing right now. I want to encourage you to stand this morning. To quote Muhammad Ali, it's not wrong to get knocked down, but it's wrong to stay down. That's the issue. And for all of us to stand in this moment, and receive the strength of God. So I want to do really two things. One is to learn some of the ways that 
our enemy would work because then we won't be outwitted and then to learn about the power of God that we have. So firstly our enemy and then the power of God that we have. Because Paul says this, he says in verse 12, you, you've got to understand church, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So oftentimes we think my issues, it's my boss. If I had a new boss, things would change. If my circumstance would change, if I had a few extra friends here, if I didn't have those friends there, if my circumstance changed, if I had more money, if what, what we look at the issues physically around us, but Paul is saying we're not actually wrestling with that, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So our issue is not particularly the physical, we, there are some smart things we've got to do in life just to help us get by, but actually the issues are beyond that. And if we can see what Satan is doing beyond the physical realm, we can be smart. If you're going to go into a boxing match, which I never intend to, but I've heard, you, you will study your opponent. If you're, a, if you're a manager of a football team, you will watch the tapes of the other football team to learn about them. If you're going into war, you study your enemy. How might they react if we do this? And Paul says that if we are going to respond to our spiritual enemy, then we need to learn his ways. He says this, if my iPad can work. No, it can't. I'm just going to have to freestyle it. There we go. No. Anyway, he says in 2 Corinthians 1 that we are not outwitted by Satan because we know his designs. So what we need to do is know Satan's designs. And the first thing we need to know about Satan's designs and way, the ways that he works is this. He likes to work very quietly. To quote Kaiser Soze, the great philosopher, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is to convince the world he doesn't exist. And aren't we living in a day that would basically poo poo? Even you might think me talking about a devil on a Sunday morning in 2020 is just crazy talk. Like you are a fundamentalist, traditionalist. You are so out of touch with the reality of modern age. We have iPhones now and you're still talking about the devil. And yet there is a sense still in which we struggle sometimes to come to grips with how some people act. When you hear about some things in the news and you hear about people are doing horrendous things, sometimes the only thing that we can do is label someone as evil. And we ask the question, how could someone who grew up in a very normal home end up doing such horrendous things? There is a sense and an awareness that sometimes there is some kind of power behind the reality that we live with, but it's kind of quiet and out there and out of touch. I would suggest also if, if we have, have no awareness or no thought that there is actually a personal evil being who would like to actually destroy us and depress us, that if we want to despiritualize the whole world, we actually have a far bigger problem than if we have the reality of a personal devil a being who wants to destroy and cause destruction in our life. Because how do we account for how people's lives end up? And how can we even be indignant when someone does something wrong if we have no right or wrong? We are left with just your right against my right and you can't say that anything is inherently evil or wrong. It's just doggy dog survival of the fittest. Christianity actually has quite a nuanced, sophisticated view of the way in which people work 
that sure there's will, there's humanity, there's flesh involved, there's upbringing, and yet there is also this spiritual dimension that is enticing us quietly into destruction, depression, division, manipulating things in the background. And isn't that, if you're an enemy, that's how you want to work, isn't it? Quietly in the backgrounds. Like, if you were the devil, you wouldn't want to put like kind of red spandex and pitchfork right, right here. Like, ding dong, hello, I've come to destroy your family life. May I come in? You're like, uh, no, next door, no, thank you very much. Close the door. Like, but what if he could enter into your life just quietly and start undermining things in such a way you don't even know what's happening? Apparently, in boxing, it's the punch that you don't see that's the one that knocks you out. You think you're doing fine, you're there, it's round six, it's round seven, and suddenly you're standing on your feet, looking them in the eye, and the next thing you know, you're looking at the light, stand, lying on your back, wondering how on earth did I get here, because it's the punch that you don't see. And what we need to be is those who see what Satan is doing, trying to discern what he does in the shadows so that we can be smart with, in, with outwitting him. So how is he working in your life? He works through your thoughts sometimes. Sometimes we think that, you know, the way I think is like just the way things are. I'm not very popular, I'm not very sociable, people don't really like me, I struggle in scenarios like that, I'm not really good enough, I'm not really sure I'm gonna really have a meaningful life, I, I think I'll probably just work out and kind of live a fairly meaningless existence. And sometimes people live with those kind of thoughts in their head continually, thinking like, it's probably just a fair assessment of who I am and what I will amount to not knowing that all along Satan is trying to inspire you to think those thoughts quietly, accusing you, we're told in the scriptures. He is the accuser, that his chief weapon is inspiring quiet lies in such a way that it makes it feel like it's just you thinking thoughts about you. You ever got into those ruts? Sometimes people spend months and then years thinking horrendous thoughts about who they are. And you think, well, no, no, it's just me. That I, I, and that, that this is the sensible reality that I live with. No, no, no. Satan is trying to destroy your life quietly. And if he can undermine you in your mind, it will be perfect for him. Because no one will know that he'll walk away quietly, job done. So we need to be aware what goes in our thoughts. Where are the destructive thoughts? Where do you catch your thoughts that are becoming negative? Especially when you, f you feel like, where did that thought come from? You ever had that, like you're sitting on the bus, everything's fine, you're on the train, on the way into work, and suddenly you just have this horrendous thought that everything is gonna go wrong today. Had that? Like, this is going to be a bad day for you. Sometimes you can wake up like that, can't you? You just wake up and you this kind of cloudy sense of like, this is going to be a bad day. You get to the end of the day and you forget, like, oh, it's fine. What was that? That wasn't you just trying to be, you think, oh gosh, I'm thinking this, I must pay attention to it, I must be very careful today. No, that could very well be Satan just trying to get into your life to destroy you. So be wise. Sometimes he can put pressure on you in all sorts of ways think oh, I'm just not very good at handling these things no 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 there could be 
a personal being who's trying to throw pressure at you and just crush you under the weight of that. So the first thing is this, Satan, his designs are that he works quietly in the shadows. Secondly, he will work your weaknesses. Satan doesn't fight fair. You know that? He's not like, oh, you're in a weak patch in your life at the moment. Fine, give me a call when you're all doing fine, you're feeling strong. I'll go and have a cup of tea, and when you're feeling really ready to fight, then I'll come. He will not fight fair. He will study your weaknesses and he will work those weaknesses. If you're fighting in a boxing match, um, I've watched but I've never done it, I never intend to, and they, someone, your opponent sees a cut over your eye, what are they going to do? They're going to keep jabbing that eye and jabbing that eye till you can't see anything out of that. If, you, if, if they know your kidney, they're going to keep working the body and working the body and Satan is going to keep working your weaknesses. If you're feeling lonely and isolated, guess what? You won't be like, hey, tell me when you've got some friends and you're feeling really strong in life. No, he's going to rub that in your face till you are breathless with the pain of it. He will isolate you. He will throw all the social media into your view to make you feel even lonelier. If you feel like your life isn't amounting to much at the moment, guess what he'll do? He'll do as much as he can to work that weakness. If you feel emotionally vulnerable, have a seasons in life when you feel like just emotionally vulnerable. I could, if you ask me the wrong question right now, I could well cry. So I hope you don't ask me this. It's not a personal confession right now, although if you, I don't know. <laughs> you could just ask a lot of questions, see what happens, I don't know. You know those moments though. Say your marriage is weak, it's tetchy, it's cold. He'll be like, hey, here's some money, go get some counselling and we'll go for round two in, in a year's time and then, no, no. Say, well, come, now is the time I want to get into your household so that you get a divorce. That's what he wants. He will work your weakness. So for us, we've got to be smart in just how we do life. Just be aware, where am I weak? Even in these moments, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, what might it be? For us as a church, where are we weak? Because Satan's not going to come at us where we're strong. He's going to come at us without us seeing where we are vulnerable. We all have, and even in our stages of life, there, there are different vulnerabilities that we, we walk through. When you're young and in your 20s and you're single, there are vulnerabilities that come with that, and guess what? Your enemy will work those. When you are newly married, there are vulnerabilities, and he will work those vulnerabilities. When you have young children and you're exhausted and all you want to do is go back to bed and have a sleep, he will work those vulnerabilities. When you, there is a midlife crisis, for a reason, Satan will work those moments of a midlife crisis and just protract it. In retirement, there are vulnerabilities and you get the idea. So we need to be switched on, amen, as a church, individually, and not just be thinking, this is how it is and this is my life. We have an enemy at work. So, that's Satan understand his ways, understand how he might come at you, and then secondly, and more importantly, we need to know the power of God in our life. We need to know what we have on our side if December 2020 is going to be the result and breakthrough year that I believe it's going to be.
And Paul says this, he says, finally, he says, be strong, verse 10, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So this is the word to us, not, hey, like, find the inner tiger in your heart and make the 2020 be the year that you want to be. New year, new you, you go for it, you crush this year. He doesn't say that because if you are feeling even slightly fragile in yourself, the person who comes and slaps you on the back and says, you've got to make this year a champion year. This is your victory year. You go, it makes you crumple, doesn't it? Like that is the breakdown moment. You're like, no, I definitely can't cope anymore. What does Paul say? He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So this isn't a call to find the champion within yourself. This is the call to find the champion in heaven and to have your gaze filled with Jesus Christ. This is not a message to do lots of stuff. It's not like, crikey, Daniel's really like smashing for 20. We've got to do a lot. Like, we've got to really make this a breakthrough year. What have I got to do? Like, oh my goodness. Oh, we've got to get, no, no, no. You be strong in the Lord's strength. Receive his strength in your life. He is the one who is going to clothe you with this armor, which is a relief, isn't it? It's a relief for me. And what he does in this, in this armor that he gives us is he's kind of outlining the strength that God can give us. If, you, if you've never read this before, it's basically Paul's outlining this, this Roman armor. And he's kind of working in the first century with Roman soldiers who had been walking past his door almost on a daily basis. This was just part of their culture. He had this metaphor of this armor and he has this Roman soldier in mind and he, and he picks this up and he says that the armor and the strength of God is a bit like this armor that Roman soldiers put on. It's this strength that we, we put on. We've got to get this. I mean, I grew up in church. I don't know about you. I grew up in church doing the coloring in things. You know, like, like I don't know. We've got to color in some sheets, learn about the Bible. And so when I, when I read about Roman armor and the armor of God here, immediately I go back to being like a five-year-old and this piece of paper and this pencil 2D drawing of this nice cartoon smiley man wearing like a helmet and a breastplate of righteousness, you know, and shoes. And he's got a sword. And he, I mean, he's a happy child. You know, it's like, hello, you know, I'm coming around for tea and here's my outfit. You know, it, like he, forgetting the fact that when Paul was writing this, he was talking about battle and he was pulling on an image of that, that was a man who had been through horrendous war, who would have been scarred, who would have had his armor scuffed, marked up scarred the scars of battle on his armor and on his flesh this was someone who knew what it was to be in the battle this is not an image for coloring in this is an image for war and we need to take the strength of god now so that when we walk into 2020 we can stand and when the devil comes at us, we stand. And when our vulnerabilities get thrown at us, we stand. And when we feel weak, that we stand. And when we get to December 2020, we are standing in God strong, having won the breakthrough that God has for us. What I want to do now is not just take this kind of um, like chronologically, as Paul says, I don't think there's like a linear kind of like there is a systematic theology to be gained from this. He's working a metaphor here. I want to pull out some of the pieces of armor that we need to take up. And the first is this. He says, the belt of truth. 
that if you're going to be strong in God, there is this belt that you need to put on, it's the belt of truth. Belts are a good idea, generally, if you don't want to be embarrassed standing up here like me. If you ever do public speaking, you have these kind of crazy nightmare dreams, that might be one of them. You're standing up there without any belt on, and whoops, okay. You need a belt to like keep everything together. And if you're a Roman soldier, you need a belt to keep your undergarments and your outer garments and the breastplate that you're going to be wearing tied in together so that everything is held in and up and you may be ready to fight the battle. The belt of truth is something that is all-encompassing and that if you take off truth, objective reality in truth, everything else begins to fall apart. And we're living in an age that is trying to continually dismantle any idea that there is one truth that sits over everybody. And society seems to be increasingly fraying and falling apart. Paul says we need this belt of truth that will hold everything else together. And this is so important for us because when we receive this power as a church, it's not this kind of Jedi-like energy that can come on us. Like, oh, there's the, there's the power and it's coming on there and there's the power, like this, this kind of impersonal thing that can come on you. It is the Spirit of Christ that comes through truth. Some people in church life, they say, well, I'm, I'm, like, I'm more of like a worship person. I like, to, I like the Holy Spirit. I like prophecy. I like to worship. I like to sing. And some people are like, nah, I really like the Bible. I like studying the Bible. I like to get into the Word. I'm more of like a head person. And like, like there is a division between being an emotional, worshipy person and a heady, like, intellectual Bible person. Not knowing that truth and spirit is divorced, but actually that the power of God works through the truth of God. So that if you are going to be strong as a Christian, it is going to be through this book, through the truth of God. That the power of God is sent through these words, the words of truth. So if you're going to be strong, it's going to mean you taking up the belt of truth, which is mean this Bible, one being open and your heart being open, and these words living in your heart. So let me ask you the question, could you say that these words of truth are, are making your heart sing at the moment? Are they giving you energy? it's one thing to go through the word it's another thing for the word to go through your heart and leave you singing isn't it I've, I've been there many a times like yeah 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 great tick and on with the rest of my day it's another thing to have that word get so deep into my heart that the only thing I can think about is Christ and all I see is Christ and everything is for Christ and everything is empowered by Christ it's a totally different thing that's the belt of truth so we need the belt of truth as a community and we also need the shield of faith. He says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Faith is not something that is separate from everything else. You can't really separate faith from any other aspect of walking with Jesus. Faith is actually the thing that connects us to Jesus Christ. In a sense, faith isn't even a thing. It's the thing that connects us to the thing. It's a thing that gets us to the real being, Jesus Christ. And some people have a lot of worry about how is my faith doing? I'm not that concerned about how my faith is doing, honestly. 
Because f- f- faith is neither here nor there. It's how Jesus is doing. That's the issue. And my Jesus is doing very well. Thank you very much. There was one moment where the disciples felt their faith being stretched in Luke 17. And that Jesus was asking his disciples to do more than they felt that they could actually do in forgiving those who are around them, who are harassing and persecuting them. And they said, Lord, can you increase our faith? Because they looked in their heart, they looked at their faith, and they said, our faith isn't up to it. And Jesus says, you're looking in the wrong place. You could, have the, you could have faith the size of a mustard seed, and it doesn't matter. The issue is the object of your faith. Is your God good enough? Is your God strong enough? Is he stable enough? Is he trustworthy enough? And as soon as you lift your eyes and faith connects you to Jesus, you realize everything is going to be okay. And we need to take our eyes off ourselves. This is not a call for introspection. Right, Bible says take up faith. So, this week's project, Grow in Faith. By Friday, I want to have faith that's 45% bigger than my faith when it was earlier on a Monday morning. No, faith is simply lifting up your eyes and seeing Jesus. It's taking your eyes to look on God. Which is why moments like this are so key for us. This is a moment where faith, faith is to, because coming together as a community is when our eyes are taken off ourselves and placed on Jesus again. Because when you're alone and you're just doing your thing and it's going to work, coming back, doing dinner, getting up again, can't you begin to get introspective? Like, pity is me, woe is me, like my life is hard, I can't believe it, I've got so many str- struggles, and oh man, my faith is weak on top of that, I can't believe it. And you get into a moment like this and suddenly your eyes are lifted and faith is restored because you see Jesus again. That is what it is to take up the shield of faith, to look on him, to stare into the word and see until you see the face of God. That's faith. And faith then connects us to the one who is our breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is, is like, it tends to be a bad thing in our economy today. If someone is called righteous, it's not necessarily like, oh, that person is so righteous. They're always like looking down their nose at other people, like, oh, you know, they're so better than everyone else. In the scriptures, to be righteous is a godly and good thing. It is to be in right standing with something or someone else. So you might be righteous in the eyes of the law. You can walk past a policeman and not have your conscience scare you. I hope that's everyone in this room. You can be righteous in the eyes of somebody else. Your relationship is good. They look on you and you are pleasing. You can be righteous or not in the eyes of God. And to be righteous in the eyes of God, the one infinite holy being whose opinion actually matters in this life and in eternity, to be righteous in his eyes is what we are talking about. That the God of heaven would look on us and say, you are well pleasing in my sight. And the truth is that London is filled with people who are pursuing righteousness. Because ever since the moment that we left God and we said we want to go independent in our life, what we did is we found ourselves not flourishing in life, but actually vulnerable and trying to pursue righteousness again because we realize we are vulnerable and naked before him. And we are trying to pursue anything that will cover up our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses and our failings. And London is just 
energized by this pursuit of covering ourselves with a righteousness that will mean that I'm pleasing in the sight of others. And you get it at work, don't you? Like this is, I mean, everyone has this natural thing, like you want your boss to be pleased with you. So you, would, you work hard to be righteous in their eyes. And if you know you're kind of falling behind, it's a horrible and revealing situation, isn't it? You don't want to be found out. You hate the next team meeting because you know that is the moment that I'm going to be made naked work-wise. I'm going to be made vulnerable. And so you kind of work things out. Like, how can I make it out that I'm doing better than I am? My numbers are better than I am or whatever it might be. I really hope they don't ask that question because that will really expose my vulnerabilities or what I've been doing the last week. And so, so you work with this, trying to cover yourself up. We do it in relationships as well. If you like someone and you want them to like you, what, what, what do you have to do? Like, you've got to kind of take a self-assessment. Okay, like, what are my good bits? Like, I've got to put those on display. And where are my failings? Like, I've got to, like, try and cover those bits up. So when I, when I was going out with Toria and we started dating, I mean, she's, a, she, she's an artist and she went to uh, art college. And when she was at art college, she didn't like sports jocks, as she called them. She's still very American. I don't know where she got this idea for. And I did a sports science degree, and I just finished working as a lifeguard. And so the first time she met, she just put me in this box and said, sports jocks, I don't like him. So I knew what I had to do was basically like minimize my anything to do with sport or anything to do like help her idea that I was just this jock and this like trying to be a dude kind of person, whatever she thought in her head. You can ask her later. And I needed to really work on my knowledge of Rachmaninoff. That was my plan. She taught me about the pre-Raphaelites, so I had to do a little bit of research on the pre-Raphaelites because I had to be righteous in her sight. She had to find me pleasing. Every time I would go around to her house, I would drive an hour from Leeds to York. I would stop off and buy a whole lot of Tic Tacs so that my breath didn't smell because I knew like, I, she needs to find me pleasing. So I need to do whatever I can. I've got to cover up this breath so that she, oh, like, he's a nice guy. He looks after himself. Maybe he could look after me. I don't know. We'll find out. I had to clean out my car once a week because like, I don't know, it just accumulates mess for some reason. I had to be, and we do that, we want to be found righteous. I mean, when you get married, you realize that you can't keep that pretense up forever and suddenly like everything's on display like, okay, really sorry about the cover up. This is actually who I am. Problem is you only need to find that like two years into being married. You're like, oh my goodness, that's what you're like. Um, <laughs> Because ultimately, all of our attempts at covering ourselves up and being righteous are futile unless there is one who has perfect, infinite righteousness and he gifts it to us. And this is what we have in Jesus, one who has in eternity past been in the heavenly realms at the right hand of his Father, who has made his Father infinitely and eternally happy that the Father has looked on Jesus and has never found one ounce of his life that has displeased him in any way. Not one question mark has entered the Father's mind as he gazed on the beauty of his Son because his Son is perfect in righteousness and has made his Father increasingly and eternally and infinitely happy that heaven, the spiritual realm, if we could just sense it right now, is beaming with this eternal smile because of Jesus Christ. You hear of fathers sometimes who are always kind of quietly tutting that their children aren't doing better. 
Like he did well in that test, but why can't? None of that with the Father in heaven. He looks on Jesus and this is overwhelming fountain of infinite joy as he looks on Jesus, undimmed and unfading. And Jesus chooses to take that righteousness that is in heaven and he steps down into our ugly, mucky, confusing, uncertain, normal world and he brings his righteousness with him and lives with us for 33 years. And he walks and he talks and he eats and he sleeps and he teaches and he ministers and he heals and he brings his righteousness to us so that we may be part of his righteousness because we cannot get any ourselves. And Jesus Christ goes to a cross so that he may take all of our uncertainties and vulnerabilities and weaknesses, failings and sin on himself on the cross, in his body, and dies with it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he became sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, we might now become the righteousness of God here in this room. This is the gospel. And when Jesus Christ was resurrected, he didn't just come back to a glorified earthly life. He went back and he sat down, the righteous one, back at the right hand of the Father so that he could now give his gift of righteousness to us by his Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian here today, the question is, where is your righteousness? He said, well, actually, my righteousness is in the spiritual credit I have in 2019 because I did, I felt like it was quite a successful year for me. I actually got through my whole Bible reading plan without one day missing. You're like, can you imagine? I'm doing that, that's my righteousness. You bank it up. No, the Christian's righteousness is in heaven. And when we get to know that, we will be strong. Proverbs 28 says this, that the unrighteous flee though no one's pursuing. You ever that moment, like you're walking to work, whatever, you're just feeling so uncertain, you don't want to, and you think there are all these kind of like pursuers around you and you just feel so vulnerable. No one's actually after you. No one's even interested in you. That's the sad truth. No one's eyes are on you. No one's even thinking about you. You, you feel like you're being totally exposed. The unrighteous live like that. And yet the righteous, those who know that they have a righteousness in heaven, he says, are as bold as a lion. That's not like an extrovert, like, raw thing. That's like, I know that my righteousness is in heaven and it can't be touched. So that I can walk into any situation. I might feel vulnerable, but my righteousness can't be touched. No one can mark my righteousness. No one can sully my righteousness. No one can unholy my righteousness. My righteousness is holy and he is in heaven and he has done the work. It is finished. Amen. Yes, Lord. John Bunyan, who was a Baptist minister in the 1600s, he wrestled with this because he'd become a Christian and he was reading the Bible and he was aware of the kind of like demands that God had, that he was aware that to be a Christian there was a high calling. And he struggled with feeling like he didn't pray enough, struggling like he didn't read the Bible enough. Have you ever had those kind of feelings? Like you've been praying and praying and you feel like, I've had a good prayer time, but you ever had that nagging sense? You get up off your knees and you're like, you could have prayed for longer. You know, at that moment, you're like, oh, what? I've been doing, you know, and that nagging sense. And he has this epiphany. He says, one day as I was passing into the field, um, Sorry, one day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul from Jeremiah 23. Your righteousness is in heaven. 
And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always before him. Hallelujah. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off and my temptations fled away and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Now I could look from myself to him and could reckon that all my character was like the coins of a rich man carries in his pocket. When all his gold is safe in a trunk at home, oh, I saw that my gold was indeed in a trunk at home in Christ my Lord. Now Christ was my all, my righteousness, my sanctification, my redemption. Hallelujah. In a moment, we're going to sing before the throne of God above. And I love this song because it teaches us how to fight our battles as Christians. The middle verse says this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, he says, what did he do? He's like, okay, take an inventory of my diary and like, how can I clean up my life? He says, no, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless saviour died. My soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon me. So how do you go, str- how do you go strong to- in 2020? You look to Jesus Christ, your righteousness. Amen. And let me just close with this the helmet of salvation because protecting our mind is so key anyone like if you're an amateur boxer you put on a headwear if you're a soldier you've got to wear your, and as christians our mind is key and we're we're, t- we're turning on to this now you know we, we, we're getting used to the idea that mental health is massive and it affects everything M- mind over a matter is not just an idle saying your body Um, can withstand a lot more often than your mind and if your mind is strong everything else can keep going we need to watch what is happening in our mind and Paul talks about here the helmet of salvation and salvation is so rich for us we're saved from sin we're saved from the devil's ways we're saved from death itself we're told that there's we have been sinned sorry saved that would be odd, have been sinned. Did anyone see, by the way, I don't know, um, it's not uh, the, the, uh, the Cockney, uh, what was the line in the song earlier? Yeah, 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 me are. Um, my heart, I think it was supposed to say, but we're just reaching out to the East Londoners for... Um, we are being saved and we will be saved. And when Paul talks about this helmet of salvation, what he seems to be symbolizing is this future sense of what is coming for us because he speaks in 1 Thessalonians of this same helmet, the same metaphor and he says, but since we belong to the day let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation So the thing that gives us strength is the hope of what it is to come. If you live with any sense of hopelessness, what happens? All energy disappears for today, doesn't it? If you don't think life is going to get better, all energy disappears. I, I, I can't go on. 
But if you know there is glory around the corner, it gives you strength for today. So Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, something that is coming for you, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you right now in Jesus Christ, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this helmet of salvation is putting on the awareness that there is a tomorrow coming that is infinitely glorious and better than you could ever imagine, even if you dreamed the biggest dreams of your life today. If you're you're poor, you know, and you've been eating like 12p super ramen noodles for the last year, every day, and you're like, literally haven't got 2p to put together. If you're living poor, and yet you've just won the national lottery, just imagine this. I mean, most people in this room don't feel rich because you're kind of like, everyone feels like, I just need to be getting by. Just imagine like, tomorrow morning you were told by the national lottery that we're depositing five million pounds into your bank account. Just check at one minute past nine in the morning. Uh, you'll find uh, five million pounds in your bank account, free to do whatever you wish with it. It's tax-free. There you go. You're on your way. Wouldn't that change the ramen super noodles that you would eat tonight? The day before that kind of news, you'd be like, ramen noodles once again, sobbing into that bowl of hot, gooey, chemical, whatever it is. And then you get told the news. Yeah, they, they just check. One minute past nine, five million pounds. Like, no lie, tax free. We're not going to ask you what you do with it. Like, two minutes past nine, you could spend it on whatever you like. Isn't that going to change the way those ramens taste the night before? You'd be like, these ramens, they've never tasted so good. They're going to taste of optimism and hope and future glory and everything. You will not mind what you are eating on Sunday night because on Monday morning, you are going to be a millionaire. And in Jesus Christ, when you come to him and you put your faith in him, there is an inheritance coming that is rich in God. Undefiled, never going to fade, better than you could have ever hoped for. Everything that money could symbolize, it is going to be better in the spiritual realm. So you think, well, no, 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 I'd rather have the cash than this kind of spiritual, what does that mean? Like, I'm going to float around in this kind of spiritually rich world, la-di-da, that's not going to buy me a house, thank you very much. It is going to be, it just symbolizes something infinitely better. And it's coming around the corner. And we need to fortify our minds with the hope that is in God. Amen? Amen. Can we stand together? Can the band come back up? And we're just going to respond in these next few moments. And let me just invite you maybe just to close your eyes for a moment. If you're not a Christian, if you're just watching on, if you're listening, you might want to close your eyes, you might want to ask a question to yourself. You might even want to just throw a question out to the heavens and say, Lord, is this, is this even real?
We're told that if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, you will receive. And in these next few moments, what, what I want us to do is respond and actually take on this, this power. Because Paul says at the end of this armour, he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. And he's not saying this is an extra thing to do and you've got to pray. He seems to be assuming that prayer is the thing that undergirds everything else. Having done all of this, he says praying, assuming that you're praying at all times in every way with all supplication. And I think what he's saying is this, that the way that we appropriate this power into our life is by taking the truth of God, the belt of truth, picking up the shield of faith, reminding ourselves of the righteousness that is in God, reminding ourselves of the helmet of salvation, taking these truths of God and we bring them into the presence of God and so that the Spirit of God can come and strengthen us. We take the truth of God into the presence of God so that the Spirit of God can strengthen us here and now. And that's what we do when we pray. We come into his presence with his truth so that his Spirit can come upon us. It's what we do when we worship, when we sing truth to one another. We take the truths of God, we put them to song, we come into the presence of God and the Spirit of God uses that and strengthens us. He comes upon us. So Heavenly Father, I'm praying right now for us and asking, Lord, that in these moments you would put strength upon us, Lord, that the helmet of salvation would be so real to us, the future glory. I pray that we would all walk righteous. Lord, in, in our vulnerabilities and our failings and our weaknesses and our sin, Lord God, would you remind us of the righteousness that is in heaven? The belt of truth, shield of faith. Lord, I pray for us if we're not Christians here, if we're uncertain of our standing before you. Can we look into your face and rest assured in our soul? Lord, would you come upon us? Lord, none of us are here because we were clever to be Christians. You just opened our eyes one day. Strengthen us, I ask, in these moments. We're going to sing this worship song. And it's going to be a battle cry. It's going to be a reminder to our soul. We're going to fight with this. So let me ask you to fill your lungs with words of truth. Bring your soul into the presence of the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to your hearts.